Michael Harding is a writer living in the hills above Loch Allen in Ireland. He writes a weekly column in the Irish Times and is an award-winning writer and playwright. Through his Irish Times column and seven books of memoir, he's established himself as one of Ireland's foremost storytellers. Michael has a new book out called All the Things Left Unsaid. And Michael Harding, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So this book comes out of a terrible experience in a way, a really horrible illness a year ago um, that made you face your frailty. And you retreated to a cottage in Donegal alone for a year to write letters. And you ended up writing mostly to dead friends. Yeah. How well, did that come about? Because you were meant to, you, you had a, agreed with your publisher to write letters. Yeah. And I imagine you both thought you'd be writing them to the living. Yeah. I think that um, all you said is true, except it didn't happen in that kind of coherent way. It, it was all accidental. You know, it was all one thing leading to another. The first thing was getting sick and being in hospital. I was in Beaumont twice and I had surgery on the spine to fix an artery. So I came out of it fairly damaged physically and traumatised because I think I was the first time that an illness affected me and kind of intersected with my age, if you like. So I'm 69 and you have another like after having previous adventures in hospital through the decade of your 60s and you find yourself at 69 and here's another one coming mm. out of the blue. And if you don't start thinking about mortality, well, you're a, you're an idiot, you know. So that was the first thing. And uh, I went away to Donegal and I spent kind of Monday to Friday. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a, a married man. I live in Leitrim and that's the home. But... It was because, in a sense, I've always gone away to do a book. Um, I usually used to go with these memoirs. I would go to Warsaw in the winter for about six weeks. And I always took six weeks that would, you know, go from blank pages to the first draft. And to do that, I have always found that I could never do that, you know, on a kind of a couple of hours a day and then become normal. It, It needed sort of, 24-7 attention to get the full run and shape of a book and so I used to go to Warsaw and I loved the snow and I loved the quietness and the solitude of Warsaw in the winter and I loved the fact that I could go and Ryanair for about 72 euros return and then take an Airbnb which would cost me less than fuel in Leitrim right So that's what I used to do. And then the COVID lockdown came. And for all those reasons, I wasn't going to be able to travel. And at that stage, Donegal became a new idea that you could take a kind of a Monday to Friday if you had your own little place up near the coast. So I secured it and then I accidentally got sick was in Beaumont and found for a while, I thought, well, I won't be able to go to Donegal. Then I dragged myself out of the bed and went up to Donegal and said, well, what will I write now that I'm here? And as you said, the plan was letters. 
maybe. I, I don't know who they were supposed to be to, except that every time I talk to somebody, like, for example, there's, I suppose I shouldn't say their names. I mean, one would be, you know, let's say Marjorie Cross. She was a, a woman who ran the Tibetan Buddhist Centre in Jampaling. I thought, now, she'd be really good because she influenced my life. And then I thought, there's a there's a Christian brother, a brother Timothy, and, he, you know, he was a real influence when I was a child in national school. He was very... He was a, a saintly man in many ways and a kind man. thought he'd be a nice guy. And I was going through a whole lot of people, like in my family and friends that I might write to. And every time I started, I realised this is kind of silly. It's pretentious. It's like, it, it's contrived. And so I was at a loss and I felt that it was almost like ghosts came into the space. It was almost like Tom Hickey walked in, sat down, looked at me and said, well, why don't you write me a letter? Right. And and I, I went from one to the other. On those, I didn't choose them. Hmm. It it was entirely, I let the whole 12 months pass intuitively, like there were, you know, months that I didn't write anything and then there was months that I would just, somebody came to mind, like, you know, Pat O'Brien, who was a priest over in the west of Ireland, or Bernard Lachlan, who ran the Turun Guthrie Centre in Anna McCarrig. Um, Tom Hickey, the actor, and somebody would just particularly one person would arise, and you'd nurture the the image and the sense of their presence in your mind, and you'd walk on the beach, and you'd walk the hills, and you'd go into Dunlow, and you'd buy your messages, and you'd come home, and you'd be doing your cooking, and you're beginning to kind of feel their presence, and then I would feel I, was, I could. Fl- I could write the book, it really wrote itself. Of all the memoirs I've done, that one really wrote itself. You know, I don't know how it got written in one sense. It just, you know, it was there. And uh, it was an integral part of just living there and healing myself. And I mean healing in a kind of a... I don't know what's the word to use nowadays, but not in a physical way. I mean, physically I was, and I needed that as well, to be honest, but it was more, it was more to reflect on the fact that illness was happening. You were 69 years of age. You really, it kind of wakes you up to the shortness of life. And and that's where I was going. That's what I wanted to do. And then it, it became complete sense that, I started thinking of people who have already passed away, some of them younger than me, and and some of them in little clusters. Because, for example, and I didn't plan this beforehand, but I realised halfway through that um, four of the people that I had written letters to, Mary McPartlin, Tom Hickey, Pat O'Brien, Bernard Lachlan, they all died within three or four years. But Mary was bridesmaid at our wedding, Tom Hickey was best man. Pat O'Brien was the priest who did the wedding, and Bernard Lachlan was at the wedding. It was like, it's like wow, you know. It's like it's like your 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 marriage album was wiped out in one three year period. So there was all those things starting to you know come together in me, and you know, you walk the beach and you live a natural life through the autumn, through the winter, through the spring, in Donegal. It was beautiful and it was just like a meditation. The healing that mm. you speak about, was it from an, a shortening of your expectation of your own life? 
was it a healing from the disappointment of realising your frailty or was it um, healing the loss of these people who you had lost but not been in touch with? Can you say, tell us a bit more about no, what it, needed it, healing? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a healing in relation to the loss. And in that sense, I mean, the people that I mention in the book are random. You know, they, they, they weren't, they're not the closest people to me and weren't the closest people to me. They were people I knew. But you, you have been special in touch people. with for a long time. Yeah, yeah. They, they were special people. Some of them were very talented and gifted people. They lived extraordinary lives themselves. And each one of them had given me something. So it's not that I was, you know, intimate and bosom friends with either Pat O'Brien or Bernard Lachlan, but, but I recognised I got something from that person. I never got the time to sit with them and look eye to eye and say, I really feel grateful for what you did for me. That was about it. That, that was what was incomplete in relationships. The healing was a different thing. The healing was, was more, I would say, to really get to the nub of all this, um, we're incomplete as humans. We are incomplete. God completes us, or whatever you want to call it. But we are incomplete, and, and that's where I mean the word healing. There's something completes you if you go within, mm-hmm. if you listen inside and then, and I don't mean mindfulness in the popular way of thinking about mind- mindfulness. I think there's only so much psychotherapy can do for me. There's a threshold I keep talking about over which you need to go on your own within yourself and you will find there that you are loved and held and that's the healing. Mm. So it's like a, a restoration of relationship, not with the people you were writing to, but with God. Yeah. Or or whatever else oh, you want to whatever you want to call it. Call that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I keep we all keep shying away from the word God because mm. God reifies the experience mm. and, and re- the reification in the word God is, is a terrible burden on us that we need to find ways out of. It's like a, a load of cement when yeah. you say the word God. And, and yet, if you think about it as a verb, if you think about it as, as the dynamic of what happens between human beings, then you get closer to what you're talking about. The experience of, you know, love as a kind of knowing. Yes, and far away from God as an external figure outside of this world. Yeah. Old man in the sky. (laughs) All that. A a transcendent being who is not also what you experience on the beach. Yeah. To go back to the beach, you say in the book that it was when you were walking the beach that you, you pondered all the people I had failed to tell, how much I loved them or appreciated them, or was sorry that I defended them. Mm. Why hadn't you told them that? Because I'm human. You know, simple as that. It, like, f- first of all, I, th- I think it was interesting to r- write a book where you wanted to say these are confessions. Now, if I'd said confessions of love, everybody would be happy. But if you say confessions of regret, people raise an eyebrow because they think, well, you shouldn't regret anything. And if you interview people, uh, everybody will say, I regret nothing. It, it's like almost like the aff- affirmation of one's own identity and life must be done with a clenched fist. Well, I was right about everything. 
So you, you did nothing? You did nothing wrong? Right? And that that maybe is part of secular culture. And within that secular culture, then even psychotherapy can become very much a process of self-affirmation. In fact, I'd say many therapists would proclaim that without any problem at all, that they are about self-affirmation. And that, and that is good, but there's something else as well, and that's the sense of incompleteness. You know, th there is something profoundly incomplete about the human being. I mean, we're completely dysfunctional. I mean, you only have to look at the wars around the world and look at everything we do to each other to know we are, we're, we're really not working well, right? So if we're not working well, who's to blame? Is it always other people? Or, or is there ever a point where you go back to Rumi and say that, well, the line between good and evil goes through your heart, right? And if it goes through your heart, then, then it's an obligation on all of us to, in some way, become more fully human by saying, you know, I, I have done wrong things. I have failed in my relationship as a husband or as a wife or as a child or as a mother or as a father. But then when you say that, it's interesting, when I say something like that in a conversation or in, in an interview, people will very often then say, well, you, you must feel terrible about that or how did you fix that? And I try to say, no, but should, I just did that because I'm human. It, it's acknowledging that that's okay to fail rather than living with the sense that, uh, oh, I never failed at anything in my life. I was a great parent. You know, imagine, imagine somebody says to you, you're not a great you know, you're not 100% parent or you're not 100% lover or something. You go, what do you mean? You'd be enraged, right? But, like, we just fail. But the, the thing is that we, we... We miss that it's okay to fail. So, so that book is almost like a celebration of failure. It's a celebration of incompleteness. Because the other side of that coin is that you are cared for, you are loved. The universe is minding you. Whoever brought you here will take you home. You'll be okay. Don't worry. Uh, so I try and find within me that faith. There's somebody said recently, and I've just been f for fun, I'll say this, but, you know, the leap of faith is the wrong idea because it means it, it, it's an idea that faith need some sort of leap in the dark, some sort of like act beyond what is rational and what we know. And therefore, you you know, it's sure it's silly. But but the, the kind of sen my sense of faith is that it is the real true self, that it is the real full way to be a human being. And therefore, all you need to do is, as I was saying earlier, go within and find it and go over the threshold within and find what Martin Buber would call the, the transcendent other within you. You say in the book um, at one point, why not use the words minted in an age of faith? And it made me wonder if the process of writing this book um, brought you back into a reclamation uh, I don't mean wholesale, I mean to varying degrees of the language of Christian faith alongside your um, more recent deep journeys into Buddhism and other spiritual practices. There seems to be an, a strong integration of all the faith journey that uh, you've 
been on through other practices with these words minted in an age of faith. Is that what you're talking about? You're talking about Christian words and why not use them? I, I why think not I'm given use them again? Is absolutely, what yeah. you're saying. No, yeah, I, I totally, after a, a long fast. Yeah. It seems to me there's an awful lot of intuitive embodiment and wisdom as embodiment that was destroyed by the puritanical notion that went under the banner of superstition. You know, I mean, I mean, for example, even the Shakespeare, the the Shakespeare that the England that Shakespeare inhabited was one that really is 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 sacramental and Catholic. And uh, and it's extraordinary to read his plays and his poems like that. But yet, that's the last moment of that sense of a sacramental embodiment of faith in English culture. After that, it becomes repressed, and the word superstition begins to arise everywhere. That everything is just superstition. So. The, the word superstition is really worth revisiting. And then you, you come to Ireland, which again would have been very much a kind of a, an, a sort of a kind of a, a colonial structure within the island that would have policed and monitored what were very, very mysterious and powerful embodiments and pathways to sort of wholeness through that kind of stuff, like going to a healer and what the healer might do maybe, you know, telling you to walk around three times around a holy well, maybe bless yourself with the water, maybe, you know, you know, touch east, northwest, east and south. That was a, a thing you'd get a lot in old Irish blessings at wells. And yet you go to Tibet and it's exactly the same. The kind of four directions is a real obvious way they use for blessing. Right. So that's like there's some sort of feng shui, there's some sort of embodiment that is a grammar which is universal to human beings. And we've lost all that. The thing about the era that you evoke by mentioning Shakespeare is that there was a widespread acceptance of the sacramentality of the entirety of the created order. It didn't have to be reached through imagination or description. It was widespread. Yeah. And if we've lost that and the institutions of the church, which you rejected um, at an earlier stage in your life because they were so damaging, they're no longer available to us. Then it's brave, isn't it, to look, as you say in this book, to use again words minted in an age of faith because you're reclaiming something but not everything. Yeah. You want to, if I read you right, reach for the sacramental. Absolutely. Which has had a long history yeah. in an age of faith, yeah. but not get re-entangled in institutional, institutional. Um, narrowing. Yeah. That would be completely, for me, that's absolutely the truth, yeah. I think that another way of putting it would be that I would encourage somebody to follow their faith tradition. I would actually say to parents, you know, teach your children the Christian or the Catholic. Uh, The beauty, the ornamentation, the wonder of what Catholicism does as you grow up. And it will lead you to a good place. And I would say to my Jewish friend the same about his 
children and I would say to my Muslim friend the same and I think that following mainstream or Tibetan but following mainstream traditions for me is hugely important because I think you can get lost along the way with people who have made it up and who have kind of you know reinvented the wheel as if it was their wheel you know and uh, that'll that'll lead you all around the place so I'm, I'm a fierce conservative in relation to religion the difference is the fundamental difference is that I feel that they're all obviously it's not I'm not original in saying this but it's they're all languages they're all trying to reach the same thing I talk in one of the books about you know how religion it's it's a it's an Asian idea beautiful story about the two monks on the boat and uh, the old monk stands up and he points at the moon he says look at the moon and uh, the point is that the moon is not his finger and religion is like the finger religion can point at the moon so knowing the difference between religion and the experience of some kind of sacred other or transcendent other within your own being or within your community knowing that is the moon it is the the bliss but religion is a very very good way to point at it and it will get you there and and i know enough uh, people of the Islam tradition, enough people of the Catholic or Jewish tradition to be able to say I, they're good pathways and they won't lead you back. We're not going back anywhere because history is evolving. So what will happen next will be completely new and, and we, we can't even imagine what it will be like. And it will be like the structures of our language and the way we speak about things will fall away and disintegrate so deeply that in a hundred years people won't even understand why we were using the strange words we were using. That we think these words represent truth. Like we say God, we say spirit. And we think they're, they're words we all agree have a meaning. But in a hundred years, I think the Catholic or the Muslim or the Buddhist, the, the Jew, will We'll be living a, a vibrant life in the presence of God and be wondering, what were those words that we're using? <laughs> right? And th th there's one person I think of in relation to that. That's, I don't know if you know Cynthia Borgo. She's a, an extraordinary writer and minister. She's a, a I think, um, I think she was, she is an Episcopalian priest, as far as I know, in America. Uh, but she's, a, she's bigger than that. You know, she's worked with lots of great, sort of mystical guys all her life and she writes books and she brings to the surface for example a great Muslim idea about the imaginal realm we use the word imagination and in fact we this is a real Victorian misuse of language thinking that it means something when it doesn't and of course, it brings us to the idea that if somebody says, well, it's in your imagination, it's less real, has less depth than, but it's not true. So truth is some sort of empirical realism, materialism. And then, well, it's just, I imagined it. But in actual fact, in, in Islam, um, the idea of the imaginal realm was, was a way of understanding the cosmos.
so that you had on the surface the kind of what the Buddhists would call the gross body, the, the heavy, carnal, weighty sense of substance and material. And that, that like higher, lighter is the angelic realm. And higher than that is, I don't know what's above the angelic, some kind of, you know, bliss realm. But that in some sense, the imaginal world is how those other realms are always penetrating the surface. So that as they pe penetrate us, we intuit them. We have these moments of kind of more intense awakening, let's say in a relationship, let's say in a love relationship, and two people, whether they be married for 50 years or, or five minutes, it's like half the evening can be dull and boring, and they're just in their own egos, and they're just thinking about themselves and thinking, what am I doing with him, and whatever. And, and then there's a snap moment, there's kind of just a moment where they forget themselves, complete, abandoned, like St. John of the Cross says, I abandoned myself, forgotten among the lilies. I went out to meet him, the beloved. And that, and that moment happens where you lose yourself in the other person. And you know that there's a deeper level. You know that there's something imaginal is trying to come to the surface. You've been busy in the last couple of years, despite having major surgery. Um, in addition to this book, you've also started a podcast. I have, yeah. I started a podcast at the beginning of the lockdown on the 13th of April, I think it was 2020. And I did it because somebody said, you know, it'd be a nice thing to do for the, you know, we were stuck in lockdown and people would enjoy because I, I, used, I usually tour with my books and now suddenly I couldn't tour so they said well, you know do a lockdown people would enjoy that I thought okay I'll try it for a couple of weeks or months or whatever and then I realised I was doing it for myself as well because initially I thought this is going to be about like creative writing and you know I'll, I'll you know do it about you know my books and all that sort of stuff and I realised that when you had to when I had to do an hour every week the thing I wanted to talk about was my own personal faith experience. And in, in the beginning, I was nervous because I thought, well, you don't want to go into these waters of talking about your Christian faith or Buddhist faith because, OK, I do it in books, but there I do it with a sense of fun and playfulness and irony. But like to do it really like without any irony to to talk about faith, you know, maybe that's so unfashionable that even I should avoid it. But I couldn't resist it. And I really enjoyed it. And all I can say is two years later, I'm amazed, still going. And it's the Michael Harding podcast and it's on patreon.com. And if you'll hear more of me <laughs> talking, I talk about religion, I talk about Islam, I talk about Christianity, I talk about Buddhism. But I talk about all of them, not as a theologian. I, I stress, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a therapist, I'm not an intellectual. I'm a storyteller. I may be completely wrong. Michael Harding, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. The researcher is Sinead Kennedy. The broadcast coordinator is Darleth Holland and the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. And if you'd like to contact the programme, the email is faith at rte.ie. Faith.